0: Now on this Invest Talk podcast, Justin Klein listens to your questions and provides unbiased
1: answers. Whereas large industrials, they tend to ebb and flow with corporate R and D, corporate uh, capex spending, etc. NGE is certainly along the lines of that. The chart is definitely in a downtrend, and it's uh, it's definitely not cheap enough yet.
0: Invest Talk. Over 43 million downloads and counting. Your participation makes it unique.
2: 888-99-CHART. At a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Financial advisor, Justin Klein.
1: Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Monday, July 18th, 2022 edition. I'm Justin Klein, and I'm excited for this hour with you. It's always enlightening and informative for me to hear your questions, help me understand what our listeners are thinking about, and that allows me to direct my thoughts, uh, not just by answering your questions, but also uh, our our focus points, our talking points that we're really uh, trying to hammer home so that um, our listeners are more informed. And that's the goal here, is to help inform you about the current market conditions, but also the tools and the mindset that is needed to be successful in, in any market. And in this market, especially, as we evolve into a very different market than we've seen for the past 30 or 40 years that you be prepared that you're not just using the same playbook. There's some similarities, which is focusing on good companies, uh, consistent businesses, not chasing returns, not being emotional. Those are the tools that will help you make better decisions with your money, with your investment dollars. And so that's my goal here on today's show is to help you take that next step. And that's really what it's about. You're not going to make a giant leap overnight. It's It's one step at a time, just like anything. I grew up, I played a lot of basketball. And, you know, when I was in junior high, I wasn't that great. Through high school, I took one step at a time. I played every single day and I slowly got better and better and better. And that's what the investing game is about as well, which is just putting one foot in front of the other and learning different lessons. And the number one lesson is to stay disciplined, not chase headlines and not chase returns. So... I'm here, ready to answer your phone calls and questions on our 24-hour listener line, which is 88899 chart. Whether that's live, four to five Pacific time, or it's after hours, on our free on that same number, 8899 chart. Either way, I love to hear your questions. But let's get right to our first listener question now. Hey Steve, i Justin. This is
3: a calling from New Jersey. I want to know what's your opinion on uh, Intuitive Surgical ticker symbol ISRG. I'm holding a small position in the stock and I want to know if I should buy more or just hold. Thank you.
1: All right. This is intuitive surgical and a company that pioneered, uh, minimally invasive surgical procedures using robotics. And they have grown extensively, uh, over the last couple of decades and became a bellwether, uh, kind of a blue chip stock. Uh, unfortunately, the, um, the level of growth that they had and the consistency of their cash flows uh, f- had the market just overvaluing uh, the business to a large extent. And if you look at enterprise value EBITDA, which is 33 now, it hit a high of uh, 70. So it's been cut in half since, down 44% from its 52-week high. And it's still pretty expensive in my book. And the technicals are just not lining up here. Uh, And I think this is going to continue to have multiple contraction as interest rates rise. Now, what is a fair multiple uh, for this? Probably closer to the low 20s. This is at 33 now. So I think uh, around... 150, 125 in that range. I think that's an area that is attractive for uh, intuitive surgical. Now, the major support levels, let me pull that up here. I do have a monthly chart. Yeah, 146, that's going to be major support. So uh, right in that, that area, 145, 150, that's great support. Right now, it's a decent support. I, I will say that around the the 190 level. Uh, had a little bit rebound recently to 206. But the valuation is just not there, and growth is certainly slowing. You have earnings expectations for this year to be down 1%, and and overall projections for this year and next year's earnings are also being downgraded. So I don't like the multiple it's at quite yet, but around the 145, 150 level, that's where I'd be picking up more. Now let's change change things up and fit in another caller question from Chris in Florida. Hey, Justin, um, I just wanted to get your thoughts on ticker symbol GEF, Grief, Inc. Uh, Just had some um, analysis that kind of looked good to me, and I was just wondering how it looks to you. Appreciate it. All right. This is GEF, Grief, Inc., and they are out of Delaware. They're repurchasing about $150 million worth of stock. That's nice. It's about 5% of the float. And let's see here, hmm. the technicals are, are are much stronger than the overall market, so I like that. It's uh, it's it's relative strength is at about 95, 92. So uh, it's certainly outperforming. Nice two point nine percent yield. Supposed to earn seven dollars and sixty one cents this year. It gives it a nine forward P ratio. Now, earnings are expected to drop 5% next year. But if it can have this stair-step higher, around $7 per share in earnings uh, from its pre-pandemic level of only about $4, then I think it deserves that higher valuation. Now, what do they do? They produce industrial packaging products and services with manufacturing facilities located in many countries. So I like that they're uh, well-diversified. They have a ton of different industrial packaging products, and I, I like the industrial space as a whole. So I'm going to give this one a thumbs up. I kind of like it. Uh, I like the technicals. I like that it's fairly cheap. Enterprise value, bit about seven and a half. Historically, this is near the low end of its uh, longer-term range. So I'm going to give Grief Inc. a thumbs up. Now it's Invest Talk Monday, and that probably means over the weekend we've got a few questions, and maybe it's time for you to give us a call and ask them so we can give you our unbiased answers at 888 99Chart.
0: Why do listener questions make Invest Talk better? 888 chart
1: Now, my focus point today is based on this question. What does Google stock split mean for investors? Now, we're going to look really about stock splits, stock splits in general because Google is just one company, but these are lessons that we can apply to all stock splits, and there's more from some big tech uh, companies uh, coming up. Now, that's our, our main focus point, but I also want to touch a bit on the private equity markets and uh, fundraising there. And it's interesting trend that's picking up. Uh, they're having trouble raising capital, and that can mean a lot of that could give you some insight into the industry as a whole and how well the actual investments underneath are actually doing. And then the yields that you are often enticed by you're probably getting marketed by some fintech companies uh, yielding more than your typical savings account one one and a half percent right now and you need to be a bit weary of that and make sure that you are uh, understanding the overall risks. so we're going to look at that story and then lastly inflation we're going to dig into the details a little bit more and help you understand the nuances uh, of the true cost of inflation and how complicated it can be. Now, let's take a look at the market today. The S&P was down 32 points, about 1%. The NYSE, that was down 46 points, modest down day. And it was uh, pretty much sold throughout most of the day. So uh, what you're seeing here is rallies are getting sold into, um, and obviously that's not a great sign, uh, but the the sentiment within the market is certainly washed out. The positioning in the futures market uh, is as bearish as it's been since 2016, when we had uh, uh, the, the market turn. But a lot of that had to do with the Fed pivoting back in 2016 as well. So. There there needs to be a catalyst. Now the Fed has walked back the potential for a hundred basis point increase at the end of July, and the the Fed meeting coming up next week. But still, seventy five basis points was was kind of expected, and the CPI number didn't really didn't really help uh, the thought process that they would pivot. But we know that the more things break, and you saw the uh, the housing. Index the homebuilders index come out today and that was weaker than expected. And that was certainly, yeah, it was down, uh, what's that? 12 points down to 55 from 67 last uh, month in the month of uh, June. And the lowest level really since the pandemic. And yeah, since May, May of 2020, just shows you the large shift in the housing market in just a short period of time. So those are things that are going to likely eventually give the Fed pause, but not quite yet. Um, still think there's a near-term rally, bear market rally in the market for most of this quarter, um, but it's going to be choppy and not one way. Now let's get back to the stock Voice Bank for a call that came in earlier from New York. Hi, this is Gregory from the Bronx, New York. I have uh, three economic-type questions
3: to ask. I'm very perplexed. I hear some financial advisors and economists every day on TV and the radio maintain that we are in a recession, when yet we have full employment at 3.6%. We're still creating jobs, and we still have 11 million job openings. I don't understand. How does that become a recession? Uh, And recently, retail sales were up. And then my second question how could we be in a bear market? if the Dow index has not entered bear market territory? And my third question, were there any previous labeled bear markets in American history where all the indexes were not in bear market territory? I appreciate your answer, love your program. I listen to it while I'm doing my daily walk. And keep up the great work. Thank you so much, goodbye.
1: I appreciate the kind words and all great questions. And they mainly center around your uh, definition of a bear market or a recession. Now, recession technically is two consecutive quarters of negative real GDP growth. And we had that in the first quarter. A lot of that had to do with uh, uh, inventory being pulled forward into the fourth quarter because of uh, supply constraints and problems with shipping, et cetera. Uh, I know companies that, you know, they ordered a ton in the fourth quarter, and they had just too much inventory in the first quarter. So that was there was a lot of technical nature uh, or kind of uh, anomalies to uh, the first quarter. And this quarter, because of what's happening in the housing market, higher rates, et cetera, I think this is a true negative real GDP uh, quarter. But you put those two back to back, and technically... That is a recession. Now, the issue w- that most people have when they think of recession is they think of the last recession. They said, okay, we're in a recession. What happened last recession? That's going to be the next recession. No, wrong. There are different types of recessions. We had a recession. The last recession we had in 08, not, not counting kind of the, the the COVID shutdown recession, but the 08 recession, that was accompanied by a financial crisis. Most recessions are not accompanied by a financial crisis. So you're right, there are some positives underneath the surface, low unemployment, uh, strong consumer spending, uh, etc. But technically, if we do get negative GDP report uh, this quarter, which the GDP uh, fed GDP now um, figure is saying we are in a technical recession. Now when it comes to bear market, is the Dow, I don't know if the Dow is actually down 20%, but the NASDAQ certainly is, and the, uh, the S&P is, and 20% decline in the markets, that is technically a bear market. Now, we're heading to a break, so give me a call at 888-99-CHART.
0: Have you heard about Riskalyze? It's a brief question and answer form that you fill out online. Steve Peasley and Justin Klein will also get a copy of your responses they can use the Riskalyze results to help you formulate a strategy that fits your investing risk tolerance. Learn more anytime and take the Riskalyze quiz at investtalk.com.
1: I want to follow up on that last caller because uh, I had to rush to a, a break. But uh, I did I did do an analysis real quick just looking at the Dow because you did mention the Dow. And I didn't know, is the Dow down 20%, the technical uh, the technical version of a bear market? And the answer is actually no, it's a 19.76% peak to trough. Now, it's, uh, that's, that's, that's from, um, let's see, what's the peak? Peak was back in, sorry, pulled up a different chart. Peak was back in January, looks like, yeah, early January. And the low is in... Let's say June, June 17th. So let's peak to Trough, January 3rd to, to June 17th. But does 19.7 feel different than 20.2 to investors? The answer is pretty much no. Okay. So don't get too tied to the technical definition of these things. Who decided that a bear market is 20%? Maybe. Maybe your definition is 25%. Maybe it's 15%. I think for every person, a bad market, a market that causes stress is a bit different depending on your risk tolerance level. So some people, 30% volatility is a lot. To some, it's garden variety uh, investing in uh, the market because, hey, they invest in tech stocks, for example, and, and the NASDAQ, okay? Um, so that's number one. Don't get too tied to these technical definitions of a bear market or recession. Number two. Don't follow the Dow. This is why I don't know what the Dow has really done because it's 30 stocks. It's price weighted. It is by far, by far, the worst index you could follow if you're trying to understand what's happening in the market. It's weighting is off whack. It's sector uh, 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 weighting doesn't make sense. It's not a good representation of what stocks are doing. So why people follow it, I think it's just frankly habit uh it's been around a long time so it's easy to look at you know long-term charts um but once again it's 30 stocks and it doesn't really matter the S&P is 500 stocks I rather look at the NYSE that's 2,500 stocks okay so the Dow is 30 different positions and It doesn't mean a whole lot, and it's heavily weighted toward healthcare, 23%, 16% technology, 13% industrial, 13% consumer cyclical, only 1% basic materials, only 3% energy, zero utilities. There are no utilities in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Are utilities important to the market? Are Are utilities important to dividend investors? Absolutely, but the Dow is not showing you that. And United Health is eleven percent of the Dow. Why? Just because it has a high price. It's not the biggest company in it, right? Microsoft's in there and it's a lot bigger than United Health, and that's only five percent of the Dow. So don't follow the Dow. The Dow means nothing. Absolutely nothing. Let's go to Robert in San Leandro. Let's we'll talk about the market. Hey,
3: good afternoon, Justin. I got a quick question for you. Uh, so say suppose I'm buying this XYZ stock at fifty dollars a share, mm-hmm. and then I decide, you know what, I'm going to take a short position also at fifty dollars a share, mm-hmm. and the short position goes to twenty five, and I exit. I exit out. Mm-hmm. I want to know on that short position that I exit out while I still have my long position, I am assuming that I have to pay taxes on that short position because it was a gain. And then some time passes and, you know, it goes up to, say, $60. And I say, you know what? I want to get out of this stock and I sell my long position at Mm -hmm. $60. So i made money on the short side. I made money on the long side. Am I thinking about this correctly?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, What you're talking about is going short against the box. It's when you're long and short the same position yeah um yeah typically there's a cost to the short right you're borrowing the actual shares so there's some carrying cost to the short position but you're right that you can have it go down and make some money on the short side and then if it goes up you could sell it for a profit eventually if it goes up enough um uh, but that's once again a big if um it's not something i would do um I don't don't see a reason for executing that particular strategy. Typically, short against the box, a good example of using that strategy is, let's say you've owned a position, you're long a stock for 11 months. And you think you should sell it, but you want to wait for the full year to get to long-term capital gains. Well, you could short it, short against the box for a month. There's some, once again, some carrying costs to that, uh, but it's typically minor and especially if you're only holding it for a month, and then you have no risk. Goes up, goes down. There's no risk to uh, owning, uh, being short against the box because you make money on the long if it goes up, and you lose money on the short and vice versa. And so then you get, the, you get to the year uh, mark of the of the long. You sell the the long. You cover the short, and then now you've captured that long-term capital gains. While that last month, you don't have. Uh, that that exposure to the stock. So that's one way to do that, but I wouldn't try to execute that just as like a, a strategy because um, it, it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Thanks for the call. Now on the next invest talk the story behind this question. Could three different investment buckets be right for your strategy? Steve will get or Steve will get that story tomorrow. But for now I'm Justin Klein and I'm take your questions live at 99 chart.
0: You are listening to Invest Talk. Every Friday on the program and the podcast, Steve Peasley shares highlights from the newest edition of the KPP Premium newsletter. Listen Fridays to Invest Talk. And now, Steve and Justin welcome your calls and questions. 888 99 Chart.
1: And my focus point today is based on this question, what does Google's stock split mean for investors? And if you're looking at Google's price today, you might might have been confused. I know on one of my platforms it looked like uh, the price of Google fell 95%, uh, but it didn't. Uh, it was just a stock split, 20 for one. So if you owned a share of, of Alphabet, I guess you would call it, it's a Google's parent company, uh, on Friday, then you now receive 19 more shares in your account but the price is gone down by uh, a factor of 20 and a lot of people like to buy in um, in front of these type of events and I think that's a very common thing for the average person to do uh, and historically there has been a near-term boost, to the stock price when you have the the looking like it's cheaper. Instead of Google trading for, you know, over $3,000 per share, now it's trading for $180 per share. Take a look. Google L is closed today. Actually down. Sorry, $109 per share. Excuse me. So, yeah, it was trading over $2,000. So a lot of people think, oh, it's cheaper because of this. Reality is it's not, there's no change to the valuation. It's not cheaper or more expensive due to a stock split. So that's the first lesson everybody needs to learn. Once again, historically, there is a short-term boost because people who maybe couldn't afford it before can go in and buy some shares. I think it's changed a bit for a couple of reasons. One, our commissions are now zero. So... You know, doing these little uh, purchases uh, aren't aren't as difficult, and you can now buy fractions of shares on most platforms. Robinhood is a good example, but a lot of the big platforms uh, have allowed that as well: Fidelity, TD Ameritrade, etc. So, if you couldn't buy two thousand, you know, one share at two thousand dollars of Alphabet before, well, now. You could buy a tenth of a share, and it was the same thing, right? As a stock split. So I think a lot of that juice behind a stock split is is gone. Uh, and there's many companies that are looking to split their shares: Amazon, Shopify, Tesla. Uh, they're all. I know Tesla has a vote on August fourth. I think Amazon and Shopify, yeah, they've already split their shares, uh, and. To, to make it look more attractive but this is one of the one of the missteps most investors make and once again long term it doesn't change the performance of the company uh, because it all comes down to their business and their business trends and Google was down today down two dollars and75 cents new over two percent. Why? Because ad spending is projected to drop due to lower economic growth. Now, certainly, they have YouTube monetization and other ways to uh, in- increase their business. But overall, this is an m- economic environment that is going to force downgrades of earnings, and it's going to be an environment where Google or or Alphabet here uh, struggles. And so that's what's more important, not a stock split, because it doesn't change the dynamics of the business, doesn't change the multiples the company is traded at, doesn't do anything, except for the price on your screen now looks a lot cheaper, looks a lot cheaper. And I say this all the time, is that most companies trading below $5 per share are more expensive than those that are trading for over $100 per share. And that's a difficult thing for people to get their their their, their heads around if they're newer investors. I think trading for $3, $4, that's cheap. No, remember, it's always in relation to their earnings per share, the cash flow per share, etc. And a stock split doesn't change that. Now, when people take the time to leave an Invest Talk podcast review on iTunes, we'd like to thank them for the courtesy by getting to their questions quickly. Chief Chris O3 says if you're choosing between Coke or Pepsi for a long-term hold, 30 years, which one of the two would you select and why? Now, this is an interesting question because the companies, while they're both they both make a lot of money on beverages, they've kind of changed. They both have changed over the years. Uh, Coke is still more focused on beverages, whereas Pepsi has diversified in a lot more snacks. Okay, so I like the I like that shift for Pepsi. If I'm if I'm being honest here, and if you look at the long-term profitability, uh, that has actually made their business more volatile. Uh, Pepsi's, excuse me, their business more volatile. Um, But let me go here. I'm just looking at charts here. But overall, their return on invested capital has been higher over the past 10 years. If you go all the way out, for for a while, for most of the 90s, Coke was was really crushing Pepsi. And ever since Pepsi uh, pivoted, they've, I think, had a better business. And there's less of a a trend away from snacks compared to things like colas and and sugary fountain drinks. and so if i'm picking one or the other i'm definitely going to go with pepsi over coke. thanks for the call. 8899 888-99 chart eight eight nine 4278 let's pivot back to the best talk voice bank for this question that came in earlier. You know the number. It's eight 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 ninety nine. Chart.
3: Hey, how's it going? This question is for Steve or Justin. Thank you for all that you do. So, this question is regarding IIPR and Innovative Industrial Properties. So, IIPR's tenant Kings Garden defaulted on Friday. They defaulted on their July rent, totaling two point two million. Just want to know if this fits the investment thesis. I am an investor in IIPR, looking long term. Cannabis is a long term industry. So. Wants to know your long-term thesis on IPR and if this has changed due to the recent news. Thank you. Have a good one.
1: Bye. Well, I don't think the long-term thesis has changed. Uh, What has happened is it shows that the volatility of the cannabis space is there. And I think uh, a lot of investors were uh, not paying attention to that. And this is one of their, their properties. And it's about 8% of their, their total rent. Now, That's certainly not not great. You're losing 8% of your your rent, kind of, uh, because what they're doing is they're looking for new tenants. And maybe a new tenant can get in there uh, and uh, replace most, if not all, of that. And that's what I expect longer term. So, to me, this is a, more of a buying opportunity. And now, near term, the sentiment is, is poor, and everyone's going to look at this as, hey, there's, there's issues with the underlying uh, sector. But I, uh, I, I just think it's a, a sector that is, has, has growing pains, and you're going to get uh, volatility in the businesses and those that are operating those businesses. And so, um, it doesn't change the thesis, but it certainly clouds the near term outlook for earnings. So, hope that helped. Now let's pivot over to yields and everyone is trying to get higher yields on their, their cash. And the fact that the fed has raised rates multiple times so far this year certainly helps that, but still the average yield on bank savings account has only gone from uh, 0.1 percent, sorry, 0.06% to 0.1%. Not exactly exciting. Uh, But There are different alternatives. I always say the you want to do a high yield savings account, FDIC insured. Still, those yields aren't that exciting. You're gonna get right now one and a half to one and three quarters, typically. But there are a lot of fintech startups that are touting 4% plus yields on your cash. And that sounds pretty tempting. But there's devils in the details, right? Now, the typical bank deposit is insured up to $250,000 by the government from anything going bust or any, any problems. The government will come in. They will give you your money back. Now, fintech companies aren't always banks, and they don't always follow the rules of banks. And their disclosures, marketing disclosures, make their yield sound a lot more guaranteed than they actually are. And these are companies like Aspiration, Current, HM Bradley, T-Mobile Money, Varo, et cetera, offering 3%, 4 5% yields. A lot of times there's a catch. You have to maintain a certain amount of money in there. You have to hit certain spending targets. You have to do business with the, the associated company like, like T-Mobile, uh, et cetera. But let's dig into a few examples. One is save. And... They tout that you put if you put ten thousand dollars in a ten thousand dollars with them, you will earn 3.7 plus percent return, and that sounds great until you look at the details. Now, what they do is they put the ten thousand dollars into an FDIC account, so the principal is guaranteed that's a positive, but the yield is certainly not. Now, they earn about 35 basis points annually on that money. And what they're doing is putting the investor's money into a basket of exchange-traded funds. And uh, these basically customized securities. And they look back at the period between 2006 and 2021, and they say, hypothetically, you're going to earn between about 4 and 9.5%. Well, once again, that's hypothetical. They weren't around then. This is just based on a back-tested strategy. And if you withdraw money early there's costs and you forfeit some or all of your gains and they estimate that the probability of earning zero return on your account is 15 percent and that's just based on that time period of 2006 2021 but going forward obviously a lot depends on what equities do so you're really tied you're really this is really a backwards way of investing in the equity markets. When in reality, if you want to do that, you should probably just invest in the equity markets. Another is FAIR. This is another high yield savings account offering up to 4% yields. And what they do is they do a similar thing. They uh, return 4% of annual dividends to your account every month. And that's what they're investing in is uh, dividend paying US stocks. The issue though is about 10 to 15% of that yield is going off to an affiliate. So that's kind of the the fee there. And they have some sort of opaque secret sauce uh, and algorithm to to trade these dividend-paying stocks. But what they say in their disclosures is that the firm, quote, will make its best effort to not transfer losses to fair members on their initial investments. Now, this is pretty boilerplate, and it's certainly not legally binding guarantee, basically saying that, if things go badly, you can become an unsecured creditor. So your your safety is not guaranteed of your assets. And that's the issue here with all of these uh, high yield offers. Unless it's FDIC insured and you're guaranteed that yield, you need to look under the hood. Look what happened with the the stable coins and all of those that are kind of going under in the crypto market. I remember a year, two years from now, a year, year two years ago, a lot of callers calling up and saying, "Why shouldn't I put my money into uh, this crypto uh, stable coin and you earn seven, eight, nine, ten percent when uh, I'm earning nothing in my savings account?" And now you know the answer because those yields aren't guaranteed, and oftentimes your principal is not guaranteed as well. And so often people mistook, they mistake marketing messages for guarantees. And you need to make sure that you understand the difference and read the disclosures and know what type of risk you're taking. This is Talk, And actually, let me pivot over to uh, understanding this investment environment. Um, You know, this, a lot has changed over the past year. With inflation, with higher interest rates, slower economy, and different parts of the market doing better than others. A year ago, tech was flying high. And if you had a tech-heavy portfolio, you probably felt good. Now, not so much. And the shift higher, the stair-step higher in interest rates is likely to persist as inflation persists. And that means you need to be allocated appropriately. So if you need help, you need guidance, I encourage you to reach out to myself or CPs at our company KP Financial, where we practice parallel investing. We, we means we invest right alongside our clients. So if you want to take advantage of our free portfolio view assessment via telephone or go to meeting, just send us a message through InvestTalk.com or give our office a call at 800 557 5461 We'd love to help in any way. Now this is Invest Talk, and next up we'll play another caller question. So hang on. Hey guys, this is Eli from Minnesota. I was just wondering what your thoughts
3: are on the I-Series bonds. Thanks. I listened to the podcast. Thanks. Bye.
1: Uh, pretty simple. I, I think there's nothing wrong if you uh, aren't a super ingres- aggressive investor to allocate some money to I-Bonds and you know, remember it's $10,000 max per year, I understand that the yield is variable. You need to be able to lock up that money for at least a year and ideally five years. And having that as a small percentage of your portfolio and as uh, a safer part of your portfolio, there's nothing wrong with that. So thanks for the call. This is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein, and we have one goal here: each and every weekday is to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom. And our work continues after this final break. So if you're going to call, you want to do it now at 888 99 chart.
0: Each day, Invest Talk listeners submit their finance and investment questions via phone or email. Would you like your question to be put near the top of the list? Just take a minute or two to leave a review and rating for Invest Talk at iTunes and be sure to include a brief question with your iTunes review comments.
2: Hello, Justin or Steve. This is Todd in Birmingham, I'm a big fan of the show. And Justin, I am enjoying your Friday videos on YouTube. I would like you at some point, if you could, to do a video on Fibonacci retracements and to help us to understand what that entails. My question today is what have I got wrong? I purchased KBWP, Invesco Property Casualty, Back in March, uh, with the idea that insurance would be something that people would have to buy even during hard times, it's down 12%. Should I buy more, hold, or sell? Thank you.
1: All right. This is KBWP, the Invesco KBW Property and Casualty Insurance ETF. And it has struggled recently. Now, what are the catalysts? Uh, I'd have to look at the underlying, um, you know, trends within their top holdings. Progressive is eight and a half percent of the portfolio, and that that certainly uh, struggled recently. Allstate is eight. Travelers is seven point seven. Now, typically, I kind of like uh, the insurers, especially in a rising uh, rate environment. The issue near term is that they own a lot of assets and asset prices have come down. And so there's a lot of mark-to-market, et cetera. Now, earnings are expected to, draw, to drop for Progressive, the top holding, by about 18% this year. Now, they earned a bunch of money in 2020. So a lot of this is, uh, I think, a reversion to the mean. They did well in 2020 because people weren't driving. They were shut down. Everyone was sitting at home. And uh, there wasn't a whole lot of activity by people to go out there and Cause problems and destroy things like cars and they did very well. And now things are reopening. And I think there's an adjustment period there. Um, I still like the space, um, just not near term because the technicals are certainly weakening. So, uh, and then on the Fibonacci side, that's a complicated thing. I really have to do a specific video. Um, invest talk or Invest talk Academy has uh, some lessons on that. Uh, so, if you want to go and check that out, uh, there would be some more in-depth detail there on Fibonacci. Now, lastly, let's get to the private equity market. And what you're seeing right now is that about over 2,800 funds are currently in the market to raise capital, trying to raise over a trillion dollars. And this represents a 60% increase over the beginning of 2021. Now, there are nine giant funds from likes of Apollo and Blackstone that are seeking about 216 billion of this total 1 trillion. So certainly have you heavily weighted towards those, those nine funds. But what you're seeing here is that after an investment frenzy, a frenzy of buyout activity last year. Many of those same private equity firms are coming back to the well for more capital. And the question you have to ask yourself is why? Why do they need more money? We talked about how there's a lot of dry powder in private equity to go out and make purchases. Well, why are they coming back to the well? And I think the simple, logical answer is they're overlevered. Their value, they bought companies at insane valuations, and the stellar performance across the industry for many years was because of simply leverage and low cost of debt. And now that tailwind is becoming a headwind. And there's less IPOs, so a lot of the companies they purchase privately are uh, it's becoming a lot more difficult to cash out in the public markets. So that's part of it. And the dollar volume of global buyouts have dropped 44% in the second quarter. Valuations fell, debt became more expensive. And a lot of firms have paused selling of assets because they can't get the the prices that they they once paid or they were hoping and they were designing the portfolios for. And so it's really interesting to see already just six-ish months into a, a bear market that these leveraged vehicles are trying to raise capital and, and re, re liquefy their balance sheets. So pay attention to this because I think this is probably the, the biggest risk in the market is the private equity space. And if you have exposure there, I would encourage you to reduce your exposure and as quickly as possible. I'm Justin Klein, this completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening. We encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads. And by the way, we've hit over 43.5 million and our way on our way to 44. So thanks to you. And you get yours anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review on iTunes. And if you leave a question with your review, we will prioritize your answer. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night.
2: InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights.